next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. In this episode, actor, writer, and documentarian Ravi Patel finally remembers his unique experience growing up as an American of Indian descent. A pretty strong duty to family and community. I don't mean that in an oppressive way, though sometimes it certainly felt that way. I actually mean that in a way that, for my memory, was really fun. You know, Indians really stuck together, at least a Gujarati people and my, and my parents. And I think so much of that had to do with there being so few of us, at least back then, where we all kind of stuck together. Ravi moved on to work in the entertainment industry, where he has seen positive results combining his genuine excitement for creativity with his ongoing quest to prove himself. I've always had a great insecurity about achievement. I don't know where that comes from, but I've always felt the need to prove people wrong. And I don't know how that dances with my innate curiosity and excitement for a million things, but obviously those two things go to go together really well. Ravi does take the time to regularly reflect by writing his own eulogy, often arriving at a promising conclusion. It's taught me so much about what really matters because when you start to envision what you want people to say about you, they don't talk about your work at all. Work doesn't even come up. All they remember is whether or not they liked you and how nice you were, how much you loved you showed them, how much you made them smile. And now, your guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Ispahani. This is Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. I would like to get you started into talking a little bit about your start very early on with your childhood. What was it like growing up? Where did you grow up for the benefits of our audience? Share a little bit about you know, uh, what it was like to be in, uh, growing up as a kid, sibling, mom and dad, some yeah. unique memories you have. And then yeah. we'll, we'll chart that journey through your incredible success into the life of Hollywood media. So, you know, we tell a little bit of the story, actually, Meet the Patels, but, you know, my, you know, I'm first generation Indian-American. Mom and dad both came from Gujarat in India. Our last name is Patel, which with Indians, nine times out of ten tells you exactly where they're from. And I think at this point, everyone knows a Patel. So our, our Patel journey is quite similar to many Patels, which is that we started in Illinois, grew up a huge Chicago sports fan. You know, I, I, I guess my uh, my upbringing was, you know, kind of typically hybrid Indian and American, you know, spoke Gujarati at home, only ate Indian food, you know, went to temple, had a lot of Indian friends. And then I had this American identity with lots of non-Indian friends and doing American things and playing lots of sports, all that stuff. Then in uh, 1989, moved to North Carolina. We'd followed, we followed some family friends out there. You know, that was kind of the beginning of kind of this second phase of you know, me becoming a Southern hybrid Indian. And I think, you know, if I had to, you know, one of my favorite things is um, my therapist said this to me once that most of our complexes and our hero identities, the idea, the, the version, the version of ourself that we think is like the hero in society or in our relationships, a lot, most of that is manifest during our teen years. And so I've done a lot of thinking about, you know, who, who was I during that time? And to the best of my memory, I was extremely social. I had, you know, I was that guy that was my class president every year, but I also was academically could not care less. I was basically uh, Ferris Bueller. Have you seen that movie? Mm-hmm. I was basically Ferris Bueller, but without the women. <laughs> I mean, I was a scam artist. I had a copy of every exam. Um, you know, I, I'm still close friends with all my high school buddies. And we were just talking about this recently. I don't remember how it came up. They were like, yeah, we don't think you ever studied for one thing. And, and I was like, you know, I think I got so much joy out of finding a way to cheat. And, you know, they told the story about this one AP econ class. I was in all the AP classes, but I was cheating, even on the AP exams. And they told the story about how one time we're in this class and the teacher left. I didn't even remember this. And I got up to the front of the class to the podium and I started reading out the answers to the entire class. And I told everyone, don't get them all right, you know? And uh, one of the guys, one of our friends did just to piss me off. That was my real joy back then was cultivating street smarts. I think that was my version of 
of creating some sort of like social cachet or validation. You know, I, I think we all have our own versions of what we love about ourselves and what we don't love about ourselves. I think so much of that for me is rooted in that kind of personality trait. The, the guy, you know, I, I have, um, I definitely have an addiction to, like, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I, I, I love risk. I love adventure. I love trying new things. And I love the feeling of discomfort that comes with that. And I think I love the feeling of the fight. You know, so much of my greatest achievements have come when I was had my back against the wall. And now in adulthood, as someone who's married and is a father and is now realizing that I don't want to be a workaholic and I don't want to be so achievement focused. The real challenge for me is finding a way to get that same feeling or to get those same ends, but doing it in a way that uh, doesn't require all the risk or all the burnout. Well, look, I, I, I think you're, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll come back a little more to the childhood. It's fascinating to hear what you just said, but you know, all of us um, create uh a platform that we operate from uh, growing up that we we knew uh, observing our mom and dad what what those morals and values mean and uh, I've had the privilege of getting to know your, your parents and they're incredibly wonderful people tell me a little bit from your perspective about what did you observe about mom and dad and how do you carry those you know like you said now your your parent yourself and all of that but Going back to your childhood days, there were clear observations you made about what's right, what's wrong. You were probably told some of it, but you know, um, you probably inculcated some of that into yourself as, as an adult. You're touching on something that I'm really fascinated with lately, which is what are the narratives of our personal histories versus the actual histories? And I have such a horrible memory that I never trust my own version of my own life. And, and even then I don't remember much of it. So I'll tell you, so I, I guess I say that as a disclaimer, but I also say that to mean it's actually something that I'm beginning to, to journey into mm -hmm. you know, here in, in, in my early forties. You know, I think what I remember when I look back on my childhood in regards to my parents is a pretty strong duty to family and community. And I don't mean that in an oppressive way, though sometimes it certainly felt that way. I actually mean that in a way that, for my memory, was really fun. You know, I think a lot of Indian Americans have this memory where, you know, Indians really stuck together, at least a Gujarati people and my, and my parents. And so, you know, and I think so much of that had to do with being, there being so few of us, at least back then, where we all kind of stuck together. I remember... You know, we, no matter where we lived, there'd always be Indians at our house every weekend, or we'd be at their house. And every Indian was hosting a different dinner party every weekend night. Cars would line up and down the streets, and you'd see, you know, these entire Indian families with the aunties and saris holding some sort of dish with the tinfoil on top, carrying it as they walk up the street. You'd get to the entrance of the house, and there's Indians don't wear shoes inside, so there's shoes and, and sandals outside of the entrance. Right. You go inside and only later did I realize that these places smelled so strongly of Indian food because mm -hmm. to me, that was just my smell. You know, you don't realize how different your smells are until you go into like someone else's house and then you're like, what the hell is this smell in your house? And you're like, they're like, oh, that's, that's beef. We eat it every meal, <laughs> which was my impression of walking into my first American's house. I'm like, this is a, this is the worst smell I've ever smelled. <laughs> and they're thinking the same thing about our house. I remember a lot of that. I remember a lot of community events. You know, it wasn't just at people's houses. It was at the temple. You know, I didn't, I don't think to this day I understood anything that I was being, that was being taught in the temples. Nobody particularly cared about me learning what was being said. I think the point of it was that everyone here is getting together. And, you know, my parents are also specifically within a community that's already aggressively community oriented. I think my parents have always been kind of uh, leaders in terms of in that community, in terms of not like politically, but in terms of like they they've always been everyone's best friend, and they've always been the most helpful people. So from a very young age, you know, I've always joked about with mom and dad that I was basically child labor because they would volunteer me to go do various things for various strangers 
all the time where I had to go to this auntie's house to help, you know, I had to go cut this person's grass or go, you know, when I got my license, I had to go pick up this random uh, Swami and take him to this place or, um, you know, and then on top of that, you know, the Patel story, which I'm fascinated with in America, you know, my dad was part of that first generation of Indian Americans who came here through, um, you know, there was some special, uh, some sort of special work visa program for scientists and doctors. What, what year did you come? I got here in 84. Okay. So you, you actually, you're, 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 an, you're kind of in an outlier from the two major waves. Um, cause you weren't brought here by family. You came here for work. So the first two initial waves, I know you already know the story. The first wave was the people who came here, uh, because they were the cream of the crop. And that's why everyone thinks Indians are so smart. So that was how mom and dad came here. But then the second wave are all the relatives of that first wave. And the way that that second wave got here was people like my mom and dad found a way to bring them here and essentially got them on their feet. And uh, that means my house for my entire childhood was kind of a halfway house for immigrants. And it was, it was so common that I would wake up one day and there's a new set of Indians living in my bedroom and <laughs> I'm doing for the, things for them. And, you know, mom's teaching them how to drive and dad's loaning them money to help start a business. That's how the Indian motel thing happened. You know, we own 60% of the motels in this country because that was a great way to get these people who didn't speak English and didn't necessarily have a refined professional skill set. They could live in the motel, speak limited English, do all the jobs, and they it, it's a cash business. And so you think about the culmination of all those things, and it taught me, I think, the things that I value most in adulthood, which is family and community. And I find myself seeking those attributes so much in a time where we live in an individualized country to begin with, but we also live in a highly individualized era because of not only what wealth has done, but what technology has done. We, we have no codependency uh, the way we used to. I don't need your help to get food. I don't need your help for a ride to the airport. I have an app or a Google search for literally everything. There is nothing that we need each other for. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, that's why probably my biggest dream right now is building some sort of a commune for me and all my friends. You know, I know we've had this conversation before and it's, it's actually very fascinating hearing you talk about this this piece of, of life. And I almost think we could do a complete series with you, Ravi, on this, because I know we've had a couple of interesting chats around it. Yeah. Before we leave mom and dad, one or two things. You know, you talked about codependency and and learning from mom and dad, mm -hmm. the good and the bad. Give me one or two attributes specifically related to dad and, and mom. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, I'm really close to my family and yeah. I have an incredible amount of admiration for both of them. I mean, these are big personalities, these two, and mm -hmm. so much love. When I think of my mom, I'd say she's the ringleader of all those things that I just described in terms of community. Literally everyone will, I, it's so common for people, for us to be with someone who I've never met before. And that person to say, your mom is like a sister to me. And I'm like, mom, how do you scale this business where you have, where you're sisters to so many people? Fact matter, she's a very busy person. She's always doing nice things for people. She's an auntie and mom to the girls and us. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And she, that's what brings her joy is being that person to pretty much everyone she meets. And I have so much admiration for, cause, cause she does it. It's, 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 it's part of, it's the fabric of who she is. She's not doing it for any reason other than the fact that she loves it. And I have, I think it probably connects her to that village lifestyle that she started her life with. And she is a straight up hustler. Like I, I've seen her make people cry in the markets in India when she's negotiating with them. That's where I get it for. I'll never forget, you know, one of my, a white friend of mine here in LA one day after basketball, I saw a pair of shoes I liked in the store and I walked in and I said, how much are these shoes? And they said like 80 bucks or something. I said, I'll give you 65. We did the deal at like 68 or something like that. Okay. Now my American friend still to this day tells this story because he's never, he's, he couldn't believe that I just went in and negotiated on a regular price item. And I told him, I go, hey, regular prices for suckers. He goes, but it wasn't on sale. I go, everything's on sale. And I got that from my mom, 
Okay. And I love that. And I, you know, it's funny, all that street smarts, all that hustler stuff, it probably comes from my, from my mom, you know, and, and she's, she's yappy. She talks a lot. I get that from my mom. I, I don't know. I just love, I mean, she loves to feed people, which is probably every Indian mom, but I love that about her. Um, I love just, I love, this is why I bond so well, like why I have so many Jewish friends. We all have the same mom. They love getting all up in your shit. And I love that. You know, my therapist had me read a book about codependency and halfway through, I was like, I don't need this book. I have this and I love it. (laughs) I get that from my mom. My dad, man, I think probably optimism. Mm -hmm. He is, I mean, he's pure joy. He's He's an eternal optimist. He's a total with a lot of laughter and humor. Yes. Life around them. Yes. And and you know, he just loves to laugh. He's they're both really funny and they're both love to have fun. But you know, dad dad brings a real optimism. He and I can sit there and have a conversation about anything and about nothing and have the time of our lives. He's he's a true entrepreneur. Actually, both of my parents are. You know, he came here as an engineer, then he randomly bought this business. He had no idea what it was and, you know, was very successful with that. Him and mom started a, another company in North Carolina, career consulting. And, and that ended up becoming a big thing. You know, this is another thing that both of them have, which is just an incredible, incredible work ethic. Uh, and, lo- and my dad also loves food. And I, I also get that from him. Uh, we, <laughs> we both love to eat and drink. They're both pretty incredible people. It's something I think about more and more as we're all getting older. It's funny how our parents, uh, you know, when those of us have had that incredible privilege, most of us, all of us for that matter, mm-hmm. you know, have, have learned so much about life. And especially as you get older, you reflect on it. Clearly, you skated through high school hearing you talk. <laughs> but uh, let's talk a little bit about how you, how you uh, started crafting your journey into the world of media. And of course, you know, you're... Uh, you're a highly respected, regarded uh, Hollywood. Well, the truth is I didn't craft a journey. For a very long time, life was happening to me. Mm. And I don't think I had a moment of introspection until maybe, you know, 10 years ago. You know, in a lot of ways, like my career trajectory has not been intentional at all. I, you know, I always looked at these people growing up who had ideas of what they wanted to do or I had no, I hadn't even thought about it. I mean, even going to college, I only went to the, I went to University of North Carolina and I only went there because all my friends went there. Mm-hmm. I had never really thought about what I want in a college or where I should go, what I should study. Even when I had to figure out my major in college, I was like, oh, I'll try to go to business school. And I didn't get in because I, I failed an honors econ class that was 50% based on attendance, which I didn't find out till later. You know, I was just kind of floating and having a lot of fun. I mean, my college experience was just, I played basketball and 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 drank a lot. Like that was it. You know, it was just a good time, and I cheated. And I, you know, I actually God, I even lied on my transcript to get my first job out of college. I literally changed it to get my first job. <laughs> what happened was out of college, I got my first job. I'm, I've got this investment banking job that I definitely did not deserve to have, and I was so so clearly out of my league. Not really because of the work. I knew I wouldn't be able to. Like it was very evident early on that I was not going to be motivated to perform this work. Mm-hmm. And I I knew immediately this is not going to be my life. And it was a wake-up call. So that was the beginning of me starting to look for things that I actually could enjoy. And I remember I started interviewing nearby for like uh, – I, I applied to be like a high, assistant high school football coach. I was applying for jobs in the NFL. I was like, oh, maybe I'll work in football. Uh, I was applying for – jobs with news organizations. I was thinking about teaching. Uh, Gita had begun her life in LA in entertainment. Ultimately, you know, I ended up, so after 9-11, my group got bought and dissolved. I got a severance, which was amazing because I was already planning on quitting. I lost all of my severance on a riverboat gambling two weeks later. (laughs) And then I took a year off just screwing around. I, you know, taught ski school at the Winter Olympics in uh, Park City, Went to San Diego and managed an Indian restaurant, and smoked a lot of weed, and just you know had a fun time. And then ended up in LA where Gita was, and um, I just started bartending because she she thought she was going to be able to get me a job, kind of working at this news station called Channel One. 
So I was waiting for that job. Gita, for our benefit of our audience, she's your older sister. Gita's my older sister. She's she's three years older than me. She uh, also started off in finance, and uh, she kind of had this kind of epiphany moment where she's like, I I can't do this. And she left her job in New York, came to LA, and got a job as an assistant writer, or I guess assistant, and then eventually got into writing. She she made a documentary about Kashmir, and then she and I made this documentary called Meet the Patels together. Yeah, now she's we're both here in LA. She has an incredible career as a writer and a director, and you know things have really taken off her in an awesome way, which is beautiful to see. Mm-hmm. And she's married, so yeah. So then she was in LA uh, right after you know when I, I was still kind of floating around, having a good time, and I thought I was going to get this job. So in the meantime, I started tutoring and I was bartending and. I was applying to law school. So I was just kind of doing all sorts of stuff. And somewhere in there, my roommate was starting a poker magazine. I helped, I gave him a bunch of advice. And next thing you know, I was helping him start this poker magazine. It was right when the poker boom start, happened. And that was kind of my first kind of big entrepreneurial venture. And while I was doing that, one of Geeta's friends who worked in entertainment asked me to, well, there's two things that happened. I can never remember what happened at the same time. But one of her friends is a casting director, asked me to audition for something. I didn't get it, but that casting director came out after seeing my audition and said, you need to be an actor. You're really good at this. Why don't you meet with this? With, let me set up a meeting with an agent for you. I was like, all right, cool. I had no interest in being an actor because I, I didn't respect them. And I honestly still don't. <laughs> and then uh, and right, and another thing that happened right around that time was Gita was a producer on this South Asian arts festival, which produced basically what amounted to a, like this four hour evening show where various people were performing writers, comedians, bands. And the guy who was emceeing the show, a guy named Asif Mandavi, who you might know from the daily show, he was emceeing it and he had to leave at the last second. So they needed a replacement for the MC of the night of the evening show. And because they all knew me and they all knew Gita. They all thought I was funny. They said, Ravi, come do this thing. I was like, great. Throughout the night of this show, I mean, look, I was drinking. I was having a good time. I did probably 30, 40 minutes of improvised stand-up throughout this evening. And I ended up being kind of the big attraction of the night against all these other people. And I got probably 15 calls in the next week. That was the beginning of a, a reluctant career in entertainment. Of course, the journey took off for you, Ravi, and the early attributes of life. What was that journey like? Well, looking back, I think I think maybe I did want to do what I ended up doing, but I never allowed myself to admit it. And I, I look back and I think I'm, in so many ways, I've always been scared of failure, which I don't think people would think about me when they look at like all my pursuits. But I think about how insecure I, I always was with the opposite sex growing up. Mm-hmm. Maybe even like w- me cheating in school or, you know, even how like I, I became an actor, but I never, I would tell people I'm not an actor and I didn't get a headshot. I, I, it's almost as if I didn't want to be all in. And I've also never done one thing. And I think what it's always done for me is it's given me the emotional hedge of not having to say that I'm all in, because if you're all in, you are exposed for possible failure. So, you know, I think that's probably why, you know, and and I think it may have helped me to an extent, because while I would say I'm not all in, I was still working really hard. I've always had a great insecurity about achievement. I don't know where that comes from. But I've always felt the need to prove people wrong. And I don't know how that dances with my innate curiosity and excitement for a million things. But obviously, those two things go to go together really well. But, you know, my first year as an actor, I think I booked like 20 commercials. I was making an insane amount of money. I still didn't even have a headshot. I was uh, still doing all these entrepreneurial things on the side. And as my career continued to move forward, I would still tell people, this isn't where I'm ending up. And I, I quit acting a couple time, a couple times over the years. It really wasn't until Meet the Patels that I started to understand what pursuing art for a living can really mean to me, how it can actually be something that is intensely introspective, 
how it can connect me to the world, how it can connect me to the people I love. Meet the Patels taught me all those things. And, you know, I think that is probably the biggest point of inference in my life, not only because it brought me so close to my family, but it really taught me what, how to, how I can imbue purpose in my work. And that's something that I chase incessantly every day is finding a way to, to have a purpose-driven life. And, and, you know, that means doing things with people I love. That means, you know, most recently in life, it's been about, okay, how can I do things I love and pursue it with the desperation that you need to really succeed with something passionate? But how can I also make sure that every day is that I'm there every day? How can I make it so that every day isn't about pursuing something? How can I make it so that I'm also like just sitting with my dog and watching TV or, you know, going for walks with my wife, how, you know, enjoying the little things and enjoying the love that I have day to day. And also just, you know, being a dad makes you really want to just be there every day. Those are, those are the things that I work on today. That was a really circuitous, circuitous answer, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's very interesting to see how your life journey has evolved and how much you've sort of focused on the intentionality of living life, which is, I think, important. When did that happen to you? Because it's such an important, I see that as such an important part of your fabric. Was that always there? You know, of course, growing up, uh, you learn some of those early on things. Growing, you know, I also grew up in an Indian environment, wonderful, uh, you know, family and parents around me. But I think it was more in my late 40s, I would say. I, I was very deliberate about career and profession. You know, so I never meandered my way around into doing things. Uh, I just wanted to focus on, you know, saying I've got to just achieve what I need to achieve, almost like a, you know, relentless focus on it. Mm-hmm. But I did realize in my 40s, which is a different life story at a different time, I hope you'll get you'll get to uh, interview me for that. And I will okay. love the show is about you. I really want to... I will come back to that. It's a great question, but I really like what you just were sharing just earlier a few minutes ago. You know, there's a lot of cliche statements about living in the moment and living in the second and taking advantage of everything else. We are living in a very different world right now. We just got handed to us what happened 100 years ago, which none of us would have in our, in our life ever thought that this would be reality. And some of our friends know I have a health issue and, you know, I, I live life very intentionally now for the last five, seven years. Uh, you know, I made it a high priority because you don't know if the next second is going to be real or not. Mm-hmm. Right. But for all of us, the last eight weeks have been a reality check. Mm-hmm. But for somebody like you who just said a very important thing about saying, you know, everything I'm trying to do now, intentionally seeking out how I can make life good for me, my family, my community, etc. Share with me a little bit about what the current journey has been for you and and your family in the last eight weeks. And what are some of those learnings that you picked up uh, in this world of uh, a pandemic that we're living in? Yeah. Look, first of all, it's worth stating that I'm one of the fortunate people who, first of all, I can afford this time that we're in. Uh, You know, all my closest loved ones have been unaffected. And so for me, I've also, by the way, we've been quarantining in a commune. You know, we have, we live in a condo and we live next door to two of our best friends and they're, all our kids are friends. We share a nanny who's one of my wife's best friends. So we're in this like amazing summer camp situation that I recognize is, 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 you know, we're just very much on the fortunate side. So I just want to throw that out as a disclaimer. So, so that the rest of my answer doesn't appear insensitive. (laughs) Uh, You know, look, fact of the matter is right before all this happened, I was going to take a vacation anyway. I was going to take the first real vacation I've ever, you know, I've, I've not ever, but had in probably 10 years. So yeah, some, some work stuff got, you know, canceled and slowed down. But for the most part, for me personally, this was a welcome pause. 
and it's kind of similar to what I was going to do anyway, which is stay at home, be with my wife and my daughter. And so obviously that's been extended. And, you know, now I'm, you know, trying to figure out a lot of work pivots. I think, you know, first of all, I think we can all agree there's a lot of people who live in cities who have this kind of achievement mindset, call it workaholism, that you and I both identify with that needed a forced pause. And I think what it's given me is it's reinforced how much more of this I want in the rest of my life. You know, I walk around my neighborhood. I'm very fortunate I live in a neighborhood where it's a bunch of young families, people in situations just like ours. And you see these people walking around, they're on bikes, they're with their kids. It can, it's what I assume neighborhoods used to be like in the 60s mm-hmm. when communities were much tighter knit, much more codependent. When we saw our neighbors, we stopped and talked to them where people had less to do. And for me, it's reinforced how badly I want to recreate that kind of community in perpetuity. You know, all my friends are getting into gardening now. and We're doing like everyone's cooking so much more. The simple kind of day-to-day um, lifestyle that I have during this is something that, I don't know, I just really enjoy it. And, you know, Mahaley and I were already talking about leaving LA at some point and you know, I don't know where it's going to end up, but I, but I definitely feel like for us, you know, it's been a good existential reckoning of what really matters, what we want in the future. And you've already been thinking that way anyway. I was already thinking that, yeah. So, you know, maybe it's confirmation bias. But what about you? Has it affected you? You know, same thing, you know, this reconfirmation of just stopping and smelling the roses and... right. Uh, well, if I was on the beach, I would be, I'd be doing it every day. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, it's just about, you know, enjoying the very simple things in life that all of us have forgotten to enjoy. Right. And, uh, trying to achieve things in life. Right, Talk right. a little bit about Mahaley and, uh, you know, I, I want to want you to share a little bit about your wife and your daughter and how that's changed your life a little bit and then we'll come back again to how is that by the way your timing is impeccable because as you ask this question Mahaley is walking by right now and she turned around and she gave me this look like uh this answer better be good <laughs> how has my wife affected my life i mean look that's i think for anyone who's married that's uh it's not an answer to that's that's a, that's tough to give a bite-sized answer on that, but you know, I, I'd say you know one of the things that we talk about recently is that Mahaley and I we've only been together for six years. How long have we been together, Mahaley? Six years. I'm doing Sudhir's podcast right now. You just got on it. <laughs> so and you know things moved really fast for us. You know, I proposed her a year from the day we met. We were pregnant not long after that. During that time, I was working nonstop. You know, when you have a kid and, you know, things moved so fast for us when we got together and I was working so much and our lives very much kind of revolved around my schedule. She was wonderful throughout that. We got pregnant so quickly. She's traveling with me, kind of single momming because I'm always working and now she's in grad school and, you know, her work is busier than mine. And I think becoming parents together while We've known each other for less than three years while we're barely sleeping. That caused a lot of disruption. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very scary. It was very hard. Uh, definitely did a lot of couples therapy. But, you know, I actually look at that time now this is my father's optimism fondly because, you know, I think she and I really consider each other best friends now. and I, And I don't know that we would be as close as we are today had we not been forced to cultivate um, that relationship. You know, we're, we're both actually very different people. I think we have the same values. We're both, you know, believe in family and commitment and all those things, but we, we couldn't have more different sensibilities when it comes to, uh, I would say, day-to-day life or just our personalities are very different. You know, like, I'm very expansive and adventurous and I want to optimize every day. And she likes, she's just likes her. She just likes every day to be simple. And, you know, I want a ton of kids. She doesn't want any more, you know, it's like, these are the things that we, that we, that we struggle with when it's great. It's extremely complimentary. And when it's bad, it's divisive. 
Well, it's it's a journey, isn't it? And I think you you know, tell me a little bit about your daughter. Oh man, she took a dump on the sidewalk earlier today. I had to go. Literally, I got a call from our nanny, who said, "I need you to come get in the car and drive to this sidewalk because Amelie just pooped on the sidewalk." And I said, "Well, why did she poop on the sidewalk?" She said she insisted. And as I'm leaving, Mahaley goes. We're going to have to give her some sort of a holiday bonus for this. And I was like, I think she, I think we should be withholding pay. She, she should be keeping the kid. <laughs> and they have this amazing video. I'll send it to you of when I approached her and she's just laughing. And she's like, daddy, you got to see this poop. It's huge. <laughs> this is actually, the whole thing's backfired on me because I taught her how to make like, this is sad to be admitting, but I basically have taught her. I love, I'm always playing pranks on, on my wife, Mahaley. <laughs> Mahaley's like a very proper person. So one of the pranks that I'll play is I'll like, uh, stupid things. Like I'll like pretend like she farted if there's other people around and I'll tell, I'll be like, well, you smell whatever. It just, she's very proper. So it like, so one of the things I've taught my daughter to do is to tell mommy that she smells like toots. And anyway, I've basically given potty humor to my kid, and now she's taken it to this other level that surely I'm going to have to have a talk with my wife about at some point later tonight. <laughs> but she is, she's got a huge personality. She's, she's three and a half years old. It's all the, all the generic joys of parenting things are true. I mean, I, I, I love it. It's so fun. She's got this incredibly big personality. She's really funny. Everything that comes out of her mouth makes me smile. Uh, she's got a strong personality. Um, so, you know, I'm not looking forward to the teen years with her. But uh, it's it's my favorite thing, for sure. Wonderful to hear. Switching back a little bit on uh, your acting career, uh, just give uh, a few highlights of, of a few things you've done, projects you really enjoyed, and what you have been working on. Pre-coronavirus. <laughs> Pre-virus. So, you know, look, my career started off mainly in commercials. I've done probably, I don't know, 80 national commercials. And I've done, since then, you know, you know, my first big break was, you know, a very like one scene in the first Transformers movie. Or I did a few lines in a couple episodes of Scrubs. Um, I was also, I had a scene in the show called It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So it was really fortunate things to be a part of early in my career. And since then, I've been in a ton of kind of like, honestly, most of the stuff I've done, I think I wasn't particularly excited to be in or nor am I artistically proud of it. You know, I've been in a ton of terrible TV shows. Uh, you know, I've been very successful in the sense that, you know, I've done a lot of TV pilots, which are considered a big deal as an actor. You know, I don't know many people who have done as many as I have, as I have, but at the same time, on the same token, I've also never been on a TV show longer than one season. So I've had like, I've, I've been at the same ceiling in that sense for a long time. Meet the Patels, I think is the biggest success of my career. I also was in this show called Master of None with Aziz Ansari. And that was, uh, uh, you know, a very big success as well. And I, I got a lot of critical critical acclaim for that, which was the first time I'd ever had that in my career, which was cool. And I'm really proud of my work in that. But really, you know, only in the last few years have I really gotten to this place where I'm starting to create my own narrative career-wise. And it's so exciting. You know, look, the big moment was probably a year and a half ago when, you know, it was it was just after Anthony Bourdain passed away. Mm -hmm. And CNN sat down with me and that eventually led to me getting my own series on CNN that would basically take uh, Bourdain's time slot. And so that led to me getting my own show called Ravi Patel's Pursuit of Happiness. And every episode is me with someone I uh, love or admire, and we have some big question about life that takes us to a destination. So, for example, I go to Japan with my wife, and that episode is about parenting and marriage. Or I go to Mexico with my parents to a retirement community, and that episode is about retirement and aging. So that show was actually set to come out in June, in a few weeks in June, and then a couple of weeks ago, we found out that CNN wasn't going to be able to air any new shows this year because of all the stuff that's happening. But the good news is, is that HBO Max is a new streaming service that's coming out, I think, in a week or two, wanted to buy my show. So now it comes out on HBO Max in August. And uh, I'm hopeful for that. 
truthfully, I was really deflated when it happened because it felt like I was finally been hustling for so long and I, and I felt like I finally could relax a little bit and I was finally there. But at the same time, because it's an unknown quality, I feel like I'm back at the poker table a little bit. Fascinating to hear you say that because, you know, part of the second series, and it's a great segue, by the way, to the next few minutes of getting your thoughts is, you know, in this new world, we're talking about streaming and how that has become such a very important part of our life in time-shifted content and uh, being able to have the flexibility of watching of what you want to watch, when you want to watch it, has become the, the new reality. It always was, but now it's become more real, given that all of us have been sitting in quarantine. So in a, in a way, actually, HBO and HBO Max and all of that stuff that comes with it is really uh, the your digital life keeps getting prolonged forever, right? Which is wonderful compared to watching a live CNN show. Nothing wrong with CNN, but, you know, I think it's it's fantastic. So share with me, uh, you know, you're, you're my first guest, honestly, in the world of acting and media, if you will. And uh, in the successful career you've had in Hollywood. Now, where do you see in your perspective of where things are headed in this new world of, you know, movie making, documentary making, everything else normal that we have? You, you know, you have a perspective on it, I'm sure. Because mm-hmm. In this industry, you know, for a long time, for several decades. Where are things going for me personally or where are things going, where are things going with the industry or both? Both. Look, I, I actually have no sense of what's happening in the industry outside of what you probably already know, which is, you know, everything's becoming increasingly digital. We, you know, and that all comes out of, I don't know if you've ever read that book, The Long Tail, which one of my favorite books, by the way. And, you know, and I, I don't think it, it applies, you know, from the moment that book came out, it's been, you know, more of that. <laughs> which means niche markets, the paradox of choice, uh, multitasking, adult ADHD. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I think, I think we're going to continue to see more choices. I think we're going to continue to see more interactivity. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see more accessibility in media. I, I, I think one of the things that's, you know, you're seeing a democratization of creativity as a result of that. So traditionally, media, big media has been very few gatekeepers have decided what to deliver to audiences and audiences are increasingly deciding themselves what they want, which is really good news if you're part of one of these minority groups that wasn't necessarily represented or advocated for by these by the small club of gatekeepers. All that's code to say it's a really good time to me to be Indian. It's a good time to be Indian American. I am extremely fortunate in my career on so many levels. To work in entertainment is to play poker. And you know, to win at poker, do you play poker? I haven't. Okay, well, well, I'm surprised you don't because you'd probably be really good at it. But you can be amazing at poker, but at the end of the day, you also need a lot of luck. And I think I've, had, I've gotten a lot of luck in terms of circumstances where, you know, when I first started my career, Indians were becoming increasingly popular as like the other ethnicity in shows. And I, you know, I did a lot of stereotypical stuff, stuff that I'm not necessarily proud of today or that I wouldn't do now. But because I was able to do those things, I was able to build a career and and work my way up the ladder without necessarily being qualified or having the skill set to do it. I got on the job training, which is something that, you know, in this industry, you know, so many of my peers who were way more qualified or way more talented than me didn't move up the way I did. Um, And then, you know, now we live in a time where there's more niche media, but also the Indian diaspora is number one in the world. And and, uh, because of, you know, because of Meet the Patels, because I'm Indian and I was born here, you know, I'm able to, I'm kind of at the forefront of that whole thing. I, I have a lot of opportunity to do really cool things. So, you know, I think for me, for me personally, you know, I'm always putting my work decisions for better or for worse. I'm always thinking I can do whatever I want. And that's not just within entertainment. You know, I'm one of these guys that I keep a notepad by my bed. I keep multiple notepads on my, I keep multiple Google Docs on my laptop and on my phone. And I'm writing down 
ideas that are embarrassing that I would never want anyone to know about all the time, you know, whether it's the Google Doc for when I become a general manager of an NFL team, which does exist, or a Google Doc for the wellness center that I want to open in the next five to 10 years, you know, or the million show ideas. I love to dream. I love to dream big and I love to feel like there's anything that I can do. And as a result of that, I have to come up with more and more filters to help guide my decisions in career. You have to be just as good. You know, one of my favorite books that I read last year is called Essentialism. And it's exactly what you think it is. It's a, you know, it talks about how we need to be just as good at knowing what to say no to as we do as what to say yes to. And so that's something that, you know, I, I create filters and they have to do with, you know, obviously uh, it has to do with basically, it's all about how I'm spending my time mm -hmm. and what the ROI is on it. And the definition of, you know, t time is basically connected to money and an opportunity cost, okay? Mm -hmm. And the ROI has to do with not just financial return, but what am I getting, you know, that triple bottom line mindset of, you know, is it, is it making, is it, is it an introspective journey? Is it teaching me something about myself? Is it connecting me to a relationship that matters? Is it, is it making me closer to my, to my wife or my parents or my best friends? Is it giving us a unique experience? These are the things, or is it getting me closer to someone that I really want to get closer to? You know, I'm literally this week in the process of hopefully getting into the podcast game. You know, it's the same way that I, I'm looking at it the same way that I looked at the CNN thing. When they said, you know, what would you make a show about? I thought about what's the lifestyle I want. And that's how I ended up coming up with the idea of like, oh, I'll travel with someone I love. That way, even if the show gets canceled, I'll have already always had a life-changing adventure with that person. Nobody can take that away from me. And I know that because I've done so many things that have failed or not gone the way I thought that I know at this point in life that the most important thing is not the end goal, is not the binary financial success or failure of the project. It's the experience of doing the thing. And so I focus on what's going to be the best experience. And that way, I can't help but succeed. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I think redefining yourself and during moments like these where, you know, you don't get them very often in life, you know, yeah. hopefully not too many of them back to back, but it allows you to, to be deliberate and critical in your thinking, especially if you're already introspective. What about uh, the industry? I mean, what, what are your observations of the industry in the new world that we're going to be living in? I, d I don't really know. I, 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 you know, look, I know in the short term, it's going to be tough to to physically produce things and to be on set. You know, you know, there's a lot of fear around, you know, when we're going to be able to see it be in the same room as a lot of people. And as an actor, it's especially scary because a lot of people's hands have to be on your face, whether it's makeup people or someone putting a mic on you or wardrobe people, you know, or lighting people. There's a lot of faces in your face. And so I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a really touchy time for production. And I, I don't really know yet what the answer there is going to be. I mean, for me, that is one of the reasons why I've always wanted to get into the podcasting space, but now feels like a really good time to finally, to finally do it. You'd be very good at it, by the way, just coming from a rookie podcaster, if you know what I mean. So uh, I, Thank you. <laughs> it's gratifying to me. This has been one of my personal projects. You know, I don't. I don't make money on this and do anything with it. It's just, it's been a great learning for me to be able to interview friends. I bet, you know, that, that's one of my favorite attractions to podcasting specifically as a medium. There's an, there's an intimacy to that kind of conversation that you don't even necessarily get um, in person. And there's also, there's a forced immersion in an interview because you're asking specific questions. The goal is to be intentionally reflective yeah. in a way that you don't necessarily get in day-to-day -day conversations. And that's one of my favorite things about listening to podcasts. And you know, so many of my friends are on podcasts and I'll hear them do interviews and I'll have known these, this person for 15 to 20 years. And I'll be like, I didn't know half of this shit. And it's all amazing. And that's one of my favorite things about podcasts. Um, and I, I, gotta, I tell you what, I love a deep talk. I, I actually, I wanted to ask you, it's something I was going to ask you earlier, like, have you, do you feel like this journey, have you gotten out of it what you expected? Like, or has there been something unexpected or unintentional that you got out of this that you didn't expect? It's a good question, but, you know, in short, um, it was an 
It was a rough journey in the beginning because I didn't know what I was getting into and not knowing, you know, how to find people who know how to do this well. Uh, that journey was a little rough in terms of the production of the podcast because I really believe, as you know, uh, audio and podcast is is really very important. Mm-hmm. I credit a lot to my good friend Tony Novia, who uh, who spent a lot of time in in the industry in this world, mm-hmm. uh, guiding me through that process early on, but. In terms of interviewing the guests, absolutely. I learned things from my uh, guests and my friends that like very much like you said, you've known that person for 15 or 20 years. But when you intentionally spend this hour talking like this, you end up learning something about the person. And that has been a very satisfying journey for me. And I would highly recommend you do that because I know what you think about life and how you think about life. And I'm looking forward to hearing uh, your podcast. You know, when you start, if there's anything I can do, just let me know. I'll need a lot of advice for sure. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, Ravi, we could spend, uh, and we will probably have a lot more than just one of these, uh, having you on one of these uh, shows. But I do want to bring this to a little close, but I have a few questions for you as we wind down. Yeah. You know, a couple of things. Last six, seven weeks, what books have you read? If you can share one or two life impacting. Well, that's another thing that, you know, I've done during the pandemic that, you know, I'm reading more than I have in my entire life. Yeah. Uh, you know, the last decade, I've probably completed less than seven books, you know, like uh, I've started a bunch. um, But in general, reading has become less and less significant, or less and less of a priority. And so that's something during the pandemic, I've read, I think, four books, which is a real spike in in reading productivity. I just read Andre Agassi's autobiography, which is incredible. If you haven't read it, it's so good. And his memory is impeccable like he remembers every point of of every match i also read i think this book will eventually end up changing my life which is i read a book about um it's called how to break up with your phone and it basically it it basically presents the idea that cell phones in retrospect will be the cigarettes of of now we'll look back at how we use them how permissive we were with their use and be shocked it talks about just how addicted we are to our phones and what it does on a chemical level to our brains. And, uh, you know, reading it, it's like, okay, it, it, may, it just all made so much sense to me. It kind of confirmed something that I've felt for a long time, which is that, yeah, I, look, I, Abby will probably tell you this. I, I want like a pager. That's, that's what I want. I don't want a phone at all. Uh, I'm terrible at it. I bet you if I open my phone right now, there's three, 400 unresponded texts. I just, I just literally do not respond. I don't open a lot of texts. It's nothing personal. I just get overwhelmed by it. And I think it's because, you know, the kind of piecemeal, I'm not a multitasker. So I'm not one of these people like that can like text and be in a conversation with a person at the same time. Um, I'm very, I guess, stereotypically male in that sense. Like if I'm on my phone, I don't hear my wife talking to me. It's Most an incredible discipline to have to create. And by the way, those are great books. I have not personally read them, so I've actually made note of them. I'm but also reading Gandhi's autobiography right now, but I'm not going to be able to finish it. It's so boring. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the other question I had for you is, you know, as actors, you guys, you and your colleagues, uh, you folks live in a different world of social media. And you were just talking about how do you break up with your phone? And mm-hmm. What's your perspective on social media and the whole addiction? I don't care for it. I, 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 I don't care for it. I, I don't feel right about it. You know, I think I have like an, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have like an old soul relationship with this stuff, but you know, I, my, my account is private, even though I have like 15,000 followers or something like that. Like, and the reason why I did it, it only, I only did it like a year ago. That's why there's so many followers in there. But it was because I hated this pressure of this other part of the business. It's like, I don't like the constant possibility of communicating with the entire world. I don't like the constant accessibility. I don't like the subconscious, like constant subconscious creative need to 
output. So I'm very uncomfortable with it. You know, right now a big fight with my team is that, you know, they're like, you know, you have, I have, you know, two shows coming out in the next few months and they're like, you have to make your profile public. And I'm like, you know, I see why it's important to the shows, but I also feel like my goal is not fame. My goal is to do this work. And I think the work's going to speak for itself. And the fact of the matter is, is I'm well aware of all the work I'm doing right now. The work is going to be either the products are either going to sell themselves at this point or they're not. The social media thing is like gravy. And, you know, I don't know. I I, I, I don't know. I, maybe at some point I'll open it up and I'll get really into it. I've always kind of told myself, maybe I will. I see the artistic benefits of it. I don't know. If I had to guess, I think I'm probably a guy who would rather just not even have a phone not have social media. There's so much of an outlier to the industry, being honest with you, but uh, I agree with you. I just, it's a complete, uh, we could do another hour just on on how the world is radically changing in society because of all these tools, uh, both used uh, some yeah. positively, but a lot of The How to break, with your, break Up With Your Phone book talks about it. I mean, COVID isn't the only pandemic of our day. I mean, narcissism is... <laughs> A bigger problem right now. It's a big problem. People are lonely. People feel like losers. And social media exacerbates all these things. Well, Ravi, it's uh, it's been an honor, a privilege uh, for me to actually have this time with you, the incredible insight about life and lessons of life that you've learned through your own journey and all the people that have impacted you and just life in general. You know, there's uh, I always try to ask my guests this, but you're too young to be thinking about closure in life, but none of us know what life what the next day is going to bring. However, I will ask you this last question. Yeah. You know, um, how do you see people wanting to to remember Ravi when he walks in and out of a room and has an interaction with a person? What's your view of who you want, how you want people to to think of you and remember you? I love that question. I actually think that's the most important question that you can ask someone you care about. Mm-hmm. because uh, it pretty much says everything about their value system. And I also think, you know, look, I'm biased. I actually, so I do this exercise once a year for myself. I don't know where it came from. All I can tell you is I have a lot of weird notebooks and Google documents, and I'm constantly in an existential, call it crisis or rediscovery. Um, and one of the exercises, I'm sure I was stoned when I decided to do this, is that I write my own eulogy every year. Mm, wow. And you're one of the few people I know. That, <laughs> there are a few that I know. People have done that. Okay, great. It, it, it's taught me so much about what really matters because when you start to think about what the, when you start to envision what you want people to say about you, they don't talk about your work at all. Work doesn't even come up. All they remember is whether or not they liked you and how nice you were, how much you love you showed them, how much you made them smile. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the thing that I want people to say about me. I, I want them to say that I loved them, that I improved their lives somehow, that I really cared and that I meant well. You know, powerful statements in there, but unless somebody knows the Ravi Patel, it would not it won't mean anything. Uh, having had that privilege to know you as my friend, I, you you are full of love, you know, and uh, you, you know that's the way I I see you, and I hope that your your career and and your visibility in the world that you live in, which I find sometimes very interesting, Hollywood as as a as a as a whole, that I really hope you get to to stand out in those those strong beliefs that you've taken a lot of time to reflect on. And I hope you're able to inculcate those to others, Ravi, because that is my prayer for you as a friend, because you are trying to be an outlier and an, and, and a person that's different in a, in a personal way, not in a professional way. You're trying to be Ravi Patel. It's- I got to say, you know, the reason why I have such admiration for you and the reason why, you know, I seek out relationships from people like you is because one thing that I'm really good at is identifying people who have the superpowers that I 
seek to have at some point in my life. You know, it's only, you know, I thank you because it's, it's only people who inspire me like you. You know, and I get that, you know, that's another thing I get from my wife. My wife's a better person than me, honestly. That, that's a gift when you can, if you can surround yourself with people who can be your mentors in life, then I think you have a shot at becoming the person you want to be yourself. Well, it's been a great privilege for me to be on that journey together with you. And I can't wait for uh, not just the shows that you're going to create, the one, the pursuit of happiness, I think it's going to be fantastic. Wow. I learn a lot about life from the kind of questions you ask and the kind of audiences you're going to have. But more importantly, we're going to learn life from you, Ravi. And uh, just what you said is is really important. By the way, there's some insights I picked up that even with the time we've spent together, I haven't had. And that's the privilege of having you on, on this podcast. Thank you again for your time. Okay. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining this. We'll, we'll do this again. I hope so. Okay. Lots of love to you. So dear, Ravi Patel has navigated his personal and professional journey alongside the values he learned in his younger years. He's also learned how to move fluidly throughout the entertainment industry, welcoming and adapting to new challenges as they come. It is clear that Ravi embraces humility and gratitude and continues to do so as he pushes forward with a positive outlook on life, having fun along the way. Join us next time for another episode of Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. (laughs) 